This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frasier Productions. Welcome to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. This is Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications. We're the leading woman-owned and woman-run advertising communications firm in Southern California. At Frazier Communications, we change behaviors. We do that to grow brands and to positively impact our culture, both private and public sectors. We work very hard to get people to adopt new habits, new attitudes. And most recently, we've been doing a lot of work work on COVID-19, reminding people and educating them about the importance of wearing face coverings, as staying six feet apart, social distancing, as well as the importance of cleaning your hands. On the show, The Deciders, I like to feature leaders in the field and change agents in our communities who can help us understand better what the changes and trends are. But now, with COVID-19, it's been very important for us to focus in on people who bring us data, insights, and are taking actions related to the reduction of the impact of COVID-19. Another very important factor that we're faced with in our Los Angeles community and around the United States is systemic racism. As we know, in the last few months, there have been many racial and social injustice issues, particularly racial issues that have affected our communities. And the protests of Black Lives Matter have been important voices, an important part of our community, hearing voices about the importance of looking and examining ourselves, examining our policies. Well, did you know that there are community organizations who've been addressing the underlying issues of racial injustice for years? They've been doing research and making public policy recommendations. One of these organizations I admire greatly is the Advancement Project. Our guest today is the Executive Director of the Advancement Project's California office. His name is John Kim. John and the Advancement project have been focused on the needs of low-income communities of color, doing research and offering recommendations to change policies in order to expand opportunities for all. I believe John's been there 19 years. They've also been doing a lot of coalition building and using innovative tools to help redirect money from the public and private sectors to build a more equitable tomorrow for the most underserved communities. John Kim, welcome to The Deciders. Thank you so much for having me, Renee. Well, John, I appreciate you taking the time. It's going to be a good show to educate our listeners about what we see in our community. I know the New York Times just uh, described the racial disparities of COVID-19 outcomes. There's been a recent report that demonstrates how race really has affected this pandemic. You've been developing and illustrating this with research at the Advancement Project. I believe the report is called Race Counts. Can you tell us about that initiative? Sure. So... We started the research on this question of whether or not COVID-19 cases uh, would impact different communities differently. Uh, We started that research about, uh, I would say, two months ago, Um, maybe more, actually, um, sometime late March, early April. And the reason we started it then is that as of yet, at that point, the racial disparities weren't being reported on as much. Um, But we know, like everything else, Uh, In Los Angeles, the sort of topography of this region, the topography of our politics, of our economy, all move things like water. The bad things like water flow, unfortunately, in one direction, and that's generally to the doorstep of low-income Black, Latinx, and Indigenous families. And so we knew as this 
virus was, you know, hitting this region, uh, that it may not have intentionality because it's a virus, but we knew that it would eventually have directionality uh, and that it would use sort of, unfortunately, historic structural racism as its handrail to curve from upper income, uh, wider communities um, directly into lower income black and Latinx communities. And that's unfortunately exactly what we found. That's very disturbing. You know, I, I think that uh, race and economic status uh, are, are serious factors. And when we look at health care in general, right, we know that uh, maternity, um, maternal uh, health is, is worse for blacks than it is for whites and even for Latinx. And now we're seeing COVID, uh, real serious, uh, disproportionate numbers of infection as well as deaths. And I, I think that uh, there are a number of other factors that put low-income Black and Latino or Latinx communities in harm's way. Can you tell us what some of those are? And then I'd love to talk about your interactive maps. I, I've actually checked those out. But first, what are the factors that are making this happen? I, I love your analogy of taking the direction and, and these things are the guide rails or the handrails. But what are some of the specifics that, that make this uh, phenomena a, real, a reality that we're dealing with? Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, we've been doing this work for some time. And the hardest thing about combating um, something like structural racism is that it's generally invisible to so many of us so much of the time. Um, And after a while, it makes you feel like you're boxing shadow and fog uh, than something right in front of us. And so the way that structural racism, unfortunately, sort of imbues our systems um, where uh, before COVID may not be as clear as it is certainly in the, these crazy times um, of COVID-19. The way it's played out, uh, as, uh, according to our research and according to what a lot of our community partners that helped form our recommendations, um, is that it has a lot to do with the way our economy works. Um, unfortunately, uh, as the shelter-in-place orders were coming in, um, it was upper-income and predominantly uh, white families that were able to take um, full advantage of the shelter-in-place regime and, and, and sort of get into their homes, uh, work from home, and still pull a paycheck um, and get out of harm's way uh, in terms of, uh, of the COVID-19 crisis. But for lower-income uh, Black and Latinx uh, residents, Uh, Many of them are uh, actually the sort of service workers, the care workers, uh, and what are now celebrated as essential workers. Um, But that meant that they had to leave their homes on a daily basis and be exposed to this virus, uh, even when we didn't have our arms fully around or know exactly how it was being transmitted. Uh, And so, unfortunately, uh, so many of of these residents – you know, were working in nursing homes and getting infected or working uh, with insufficient protection uh, in supermarkets um, or what have you. And so uh, because of the way our economy works, uh, that's when we started to see the shift um, of of infections going into these communities. Um, It's also the way that housing segregation works. Um, And so unfortunately, L.A. County is very diverse um, in our overall aggregate numbers but is by no means diverse by neighborhood. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm always saying that our most diverse uh, places in LA are just the freeways and not our our homes uh, and our neighborhoods. Um, And because of the way gentrification and redlining has worked, you have ridiculously over dense communities. Uh, And so as COVID-19 was hitting, um, you know, 
the common uh, refrain from public health is if you have symptoms, you should self-quarantine, which might work well for you and I, Renee, um, where we could separate ourselves from our homes and our uh, and the rest of our families. Um, But if you are nine, 10 people in a single bedroom apartment, um, it's really impossible to self-quarantine. Really difficult. That's right. That's right. And so we think that's where we saw a lot of the shooting up uh, of the cases. Sadly, I think you're right about all of these things. So what can we do about this? Uh, what, what are your recommendations to try to address this uh, disparity? You know, when we started the research, we thought that um, we wanted to frame up a long haul fight. Right. The reason why you see these disparities is that they didn't happen overnight. Uh, these are disparities that unfortunately were, were baked into the system over generations. Um, And for generations, we had gotten by with pulling public health infrastructure and the infrastructure for wellness um, out of, uh, you know, highly dense communities of color. Um, They have fewer parks. They have fewer access to clinics and hospitals. Uh, They have fewer access, less access to um, grocery stores with a full complement of of fresh foods and vegetables. Um, Mm -hmm. And and for generations, we've made this this disinvestment. And so we kind of wanted to show uh, this research is say, in the end, we need to react and respond to COVID, but we also need a permanent surge in public mm-hmm. health infrastructure in these communities, not just for right now, but for the next several generations. But yes. as, the data, as the data was coming in, and it was, uh, the, the numbers are very stark in terms of how quickly it shifted into these communities and how bad the disparities are becoming, we decided we need to do something more immediately. So we've been working now with philanthropy, the county and community partners to address a more equitable, more immediate approach uh, to these disparities. So in addition to more clinics, what else are you recommending uh, with philanthropy and these other folks? What what kinds of actions? Sure. You know, um, like a lot of things, um, when it comes to these questions of racial disparity, you have to contend with a trust gap that exists, right? So Mm -hmm. because of you know, uh, over-policing and over-incarceration and violence by police in some of these communities because of public charge and ICE raids and and the rhetoric from the Trump administration, you have this huge trust gap. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so what might work in in an upper-income community where the trust gap is smaller will not work in some of these communities. And so we're recommending a three-pronged approach, one where you focus on, yes, the medical, so let's surge testing capacity, contact tracing, and linkage to treatment. But you also need a solid air game with culturally appropriate messaging and from trusted messengers to say, hey, mm-hmm. actually, you know, even if you're undocumented, you can get tested. And even if you don't have any money or insurance, it, testing is free. Like you need uh, messaging that's a culturally appropriate and targeted to, to, to bridge that gap. And the last thing you need is a ground game, right? So you need uh, community-based organizations that have been there for years. We're not the only ones that have been fighting this fight. There are hundreds of great CBOs more on the ground uh, that have trusted relationships, uh, and they can actually attest to, hey, these public health officials are here for your well-being. You can trust right. them, and let's go get tested, right? So you need all three well, of those, the medical. That's the absolutely and right. I think they all all count, and, you know, it's part of a communications effort that I've seen the public health uh, try to implement. I think the CBOs are critical, particularly for contact tracing. Uh, this is going to be so important that people are willing to talk to people and explain when they're ill, who else they saw, where they went, and so those people could be notified so we can keep the R 
factor down and there's the number of people that are, are infected by others. I'm really glad to hear the three prongs. I've got to switch over a little bit just to also talk sure. about what's happened in the racial equity research. I know that you've been working on ra- racial equity research policy and advocacy for some time. How has this shifted since the murder of George Floyd and the, uh, the needed uprising uh, and just uh, consciousness or raised, uh, raising, if you will, of all of America to realize the systemic uh, racism. What, what shift have you seen in, in the work that you're doing? Well, you know, in some ways, this has been, you know, a generations-long fight. And, you know, there are some who live in the Southwest here that talk about that they didn't cross the border, the border crossed them. And when it comes to the murder of George Floyd and the uh, uprising that we're seeing on on the streets across this country uh, being led by Black Lives Matter and other black leaders, they've really shifted the political line on on the conversation that we could be having around this. Um, But for some of our organizations, you know, we've been working on these issues for some time um, and now have a different political context to operate in. Um, uh, and so, you know, for us, it's always been that, you know, you cannot build a house with only one tool. And for mm-hmm. some reason, 40 to 60 years ago, we decided to try to resolve all of our social ills uh, with one tool, and that was incarceration and policing. When instead, mm-hmm. we need to have mental health workers, we need to have social workers, we need to have public health and jobs, and we need to have all the different tools that you would expect any competent carpenter to have to approach a house. We need that same mm-hmm. set of tools and maybe more complicated set of tools uh, when it comes to dealing with um, our societal issues. And so we've been trying to proliferate and nuance our thinking that, yes, there may be a role for police officers, um, but it doesn't have to be 50% or more of our budgets because there has to be a lot of other approaches that we could take here. When a kid is anxious about what's happening in their homes, that shouldn't be an armed officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, a dog is barking, that shouldn't be an armed officer that responds. There's got to be a, a, a hundred different types of options in terms of what we put out there. And so that's the kind of work that we've really all been trying to do for some time. And the idea now that the political conversation has lifted to such an extent and the narratives have shifted to such a great extent, again, because of Black Lives Matter and their extraordinary work on the ground, um, that just created a, a window of opportunity to really move us, I think, into the 21st century. I like that idea a lot. I know there was a piece in the LA Times, I think, on the 5th of July uh, that uh, pointed out in their analysis that violent crimes are really a relatively small part of 911 calls. And they broke down the other kinds of calls, just as you pointed out, dogs making noise, uh, 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 complaints of loud parties, and and sadly, family fights or episodes of mental illness. Those are times when other professionals should be called upon, right? Mental health professionals and people who know how to talk people people down and intercede. There's no reason to have police officers with guns in those in those environments. So do you believe there really will be a change in the allocation of resources and the role of police of maybe an alternative way of accessing, uh, for instance, not another phone number instead of 911 if it is uh, dogs making noise or a, uh, a feud between uh, neighbors? Do you think that's one approach that you'll see happening or at least be explored? Yeah, you know, I think there are a few 
fronts to consider um, to answer your question. You know, the first would be the narrative and political question. And, and Black Lives Matter and a lot of the organizers on the ground have really shifted that, as I've said. Then there's a question of, you know, uh, government-wise, infrastructure-wise, can you actually do this? Can you actually defund a department to an extent while building up another department? And unfortunately, in California, and particularly since uh, the 70s, um, we have a lot of experience defunding departments. It just hasn't been the police department. It's been our schools mm-hmm. and our and our unified you know school districts. Uh, it, unfortunately, mental health has been defunded to an extraordinary extent. So we mm-hmm. unfortunately have a playbook for how to defund a thing, um, but we have less experience on how to imagine something different, right? Mm-hmm. How to break out from our addiction of the status quo. Uh, and to say, hey, actually, what would it look like to have care teams built out in a in a wholly new and multidisciplinary way? And how do you build a different kind of department or sets of departments? That's we have an imagination challenge, and we have a public will challenge, right? So I'm not worried about the narrative, and I'm not worried about our ability to it, to to implement these things. I'm worried about whether or not we have the public will to do so, and if we can encourage enough imagination um, to kind of really move to thinking to something different. Well, I think you're right. I think imagination, but also looking to other countries. You know, we're not alone in this, as you know. Uh, there are other countries that I think have developed a better infrastructure with care options. I love your idea of a care team. And uh, and and I think times are, people are uh, impatient. We expect real change to happen, uh, not just a lot of dialogue and narrative among politicians. So I'm hoping that we really will see this uh, emerge in 2021. Am I wrong to hope? for that? You know, I, I think I think the the window created by the advocates on the ground, the protesters, uh, make me hopeful. Um, I was dismayed to see the version of the budget that was passed by L.A. City. I mean, the other thing that we know, because I've, I've been in this work for a while, is the press release around, you know, a $150 million budget cut you know, when you look into the details, there's not actually a whole lot of cutting that's happening, right? Some of it is moving some dollars around from here to there. Um, and that was actually but, added. Those dollars were going to be added anyway. So he took away the addition. Right. He didn't subtract right. from what exists. That's right? right. That's right. And then there's other things like, you know, there's a lot of summer events that aren't happening that actually used to, that they had a budget for overtime. Um, oh and so Same. there's a lot of yeah. things that has moved around. So I, I never believed the press releases. But I am excited about some of the reform efforts that you see from, let's say, Councilmember Marquis Harris Dawson, right? How do we replace, um, you know, armed officers from whether or not I have a taillight fixed to having, deal, you know, the Department of Transportation uh, and traffic right. handle that, right? Traffic, I mean, tra- right, are, right. Right. can we lessen the load, right, of, 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 of police officers in terms of what they're carrying for all of us? Have them really focus on the bad guys? And instead yeah. say, hey, traffic and when somebody's dealing with mental health issues, can we build out these teams? I've, I've, we've seen some pretty great motions um, and some, some real options being put on the table. You know, do we have the political capital to get those to the finish lines and then turn that into reality with the right allocation of budgets? That's the question in front of us. And because I'm seeing that kind of courage from some council members, you know, like Nuri Martinez and Marquise Harris-Dawson, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm somewhat hopeful. 
I am well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm hopeful as well, and I think we're going to keep pressure on them. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ballot measures that are coming up um, so I can get your perspective. I know your organization supports uh, schools and communities first. But tell us what we need to know about uh, that ballot measure and why it matters now. You know, in these current times, you know, I, I try to, I'm trying to contextualize this for my children. I have a 13-year-old and a, and a 10-year-old. And I was telling them about 1992, right? And at the time, I was 16 years old. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember seeing L.A. on fire. I remember seeing smoke. The you Rodney know, King riots, up. right. Exactly right, right. right? And, and many of us call those the, the L.A. uprising of 92. And, you know, that really turn my life around. It really politicized me and to say that this is what I want to focus my life on so that that would never happen again. Um, now, when, when I thought about and did the research and, and looked into history about how it is we got to that point in 1992, there's a lot of things that we need to think about, but some of it include, you know, how did we get to a point where our budgets, our public budgets for the state and the city and county were so threadbare? in terms of dealing with actual needs of people living in poverty, people struggling with addiction. How is it that our coverage is so threadbare? Uh, And you have to look at what happened with Prop 13 in 1978. Um, And, you know, that was a moment in California's history where as we were starting to become more diverse of a state, um, we decided to turn our our backs on this idea of being a golden state, right? In In the 50s and 60s, uh, we had governors doubling down, tripling down on public investments in public schools, like and, and, and not only K twelve but UCs, uh, and university systems, housing. Exactly. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And 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 by seventy eight, as we're becoming more diverse, we decided to shut that down and actually go from the golden state to the state of triage, right? And mm-hmm. and we've been in this sort of state of perpetual crisis ever since. And and the idea of Prop thirteen was sold as a question about residences and grandma staying in, their, in her home. And we think that's right. That's why we're excited that Schools and Communities First does nothing, absolutely nothing around the residential properties. But we also know that hidden underneath that uh, was these loopholes for corporations uh, that they have since been able to draw down resources essentially from taxpayers um, to subsidize their bottom line while our public services were threadbare. Uh, And so Schools and Communities First is our first opportunity in 40 years to not mess with the residential side, but to close those corporate loopholes so that we can get $12 billion a year back into public budgets to pay for schools, to pay for fire departments, to pay for public health, to pay for all the things we know we need right now. Well, now is the time, you know, I think given uh, that we have, as you described, a threadbare uh, the way we finance these programs. But I don't know if people have the historical context. I don't think at all that they do, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you know, the perspective you're giving is very valued, but uh, people are so immediate in their reaction. And, of course, there are very uh, you know, well-funded forces on, on against uh, right. the proposition. I mean, how can we appeal to people's empathy and understanding of, as you said, the golden state, the way we want lives to be led, the, the kind of community we want our children to live in, and, and, uh, and, and, and give respect to the... 
I guess the ideal we're, we're really trying to achieve as Los Angeles. You see there are, uh, are there spokespeople? Is there someone who's taking this kind of view forward that you feel can uh, help us in this direction and guide us through this well, difficult time, for the, particularly you know, for an initiative like that? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think um, one of the best things about my job is that I get to, 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 to work with leaders hundreds, thousands of leaders that have a vision for what California can be, understand the stakes at this particular moment, and can speak to not only this question of empathy, but this question of values about who we are as a state and who we want to be, right? And, And the way that we discover ourselves requires us to go through a process and a period where we have to let go of some things of the past. We only have about 20 seconds left, John. You want to draw our attention to any additional propositions that we should be uh, attending to as we move toward November? You know, this is going to be, um, for, for somebody who came up in the 90s, this is going to be the dream ballot, right? This is the justice ballot um, where we can not only uh, close corporate loopholes, we could undo the shackle of not being able to look at race directly with reforming Prop 209, and we'll also be able to re-enfranchise um, voters who have been disenfranchised because of over-incarceration, uh, and that's the next ballot measure. So 15, 16, and 17 are extraordinary opportunities for California to do some real structural reform uh, to meet this moment, uh, and not just a lot of you know bells and whistles. Uh, there are other great initiatives uh, around rent control and what have you, uh, but that might be for another time. Well, thank you, John Kim. Great advice. Uh, ballot measures 15, 16, and 17. We'll probably call back on you to uh, uh, share that with us as we move closer to the election. John Kim is the Executive Director of Advancement Projects, California office. Thank you for helping us understand the great work that the Advancement Project is doing. Thank you all for listening. This is uh, Renee Frazier of Frazier Communications. Contact us at FrazierCommunications.com to learn more about Frazier and find our podcast at the Frazier communications.com website. Have a wonderful week ahead and stay safe. This is a message from Dr. Barbara Ferrer of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. One of the most powerful tools we have to slow the spread of COVID-19 is physical distancing. When you're out of your house, please stay at least six feet away from all other people and wear a cloth face covering. Learn more at publichealth.lacounty.gov. To learn more about how you can protect yourself from COVID-19, go to publichealth.lacounty.gov. Brought to you by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frazier Productions. 